Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. And we're back in the journalism department's newsroom where some of our students have been doing some work on, well, you guessed it. Brexit. Yeah, like it or not, we're coming back to that. And we're getting Brexit done, over the line, no extensions, all that stuff, with a dive into the effect that a no-deal break with Europe could have on funding for the arts and culture sector in Manchester and the North West. To do all that, I'm joined by my MMU colleagues, Dave Porter. Hi, Dave. Hi, Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Pete. And also by Natalie Carricker from our Arts and Humanities magazine. Aha, welcome to Bang to Rights, Natalie. Hi, Pete. So we'll be looking... Also this week at the Westminster lobby and whether the veteran political columnist Peter Oborn is right to say that correspondents have been lured by the new Downing Street incumbents into a kind of client journalism which has allowed number 10 to frame the story as it wants. We'll also look into coverage by local and international journalists of five months of unrest in Hong Kong and what we can learn here about how to report day in day out on a continuing story in such a challenging environment. We'll hear from both working journalists in Hong Kong and journalism teachers there. But before we come to all that, Dave, Jez, what's caught your attention in the news with this week? Um, Dave? Um, there was a good case with the Oxford Mail who had applied for Section 45 to be listed. Lifted, rather. Um, the reporter was at court. It was a baby. And the, uh, the father had um, shaken the baby and actually hit the baby's head against a, a kitchen worktop. And uh, the mother actually, interestingly, supported the application by the mail to lift the section 45. And, um, and the judge said, which is a classic thing, you know, for, for journalists to learn that uh, the child is too young to suffer from any adverse publicity. And so, because of course, not naming the child would have meant you can't name the father. Yep. So it's just one of those, they come up all the time, but they're just hot, you know, it's good to see reporters, especially young reporters, straight out of journalism school, challenging uh, Section 45s. Yeah, it's something that we come back to, and there's, there's lots and lots of good examples. So I think yeah. we should make a point. Anytime we see one of those, we should mention it yeah. and bring it to people's attention. Definitely. So, and that was on hold the front page. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'll, I'll put a note in, in mm. the show notes for today for that so people can have a look at the detail of that. Mm. Jess, what about yourself? Yeah, just uh, something that I saw in the news today uh, just highlighted the importance of accuracy and how getting one element wrong can take you down a path which could have repercussions down the, down the road. But I saw that the American author Naomi Wolf who's uh, recently published a book um, uh, in the UK, but actually this book she'd been working on prior to publication. She was interviewed on, on the BBC where the reporter actually challenged some of her research. Matthew Sweet. Matthew Sweet it was, mm. yeah, and he pointed out that she's misinterpreted uh, a historic yeah. terminology, legal terminology, and because she understood it to mean one thing, that has sort of um, coloured her research and, and her sort of opinions in her book. And he's actually said that she's misinterpreted it. So all her research is, is false. And it's quite important and because it refers to death, doesn't it? It does. It's Victorian and prisons. she's got it completely wrong, unfortunately. Yeah, and whether, whether, essentially whether people were executed for their crimes when in fact they hadn't been. Right. And her American publisher has actually now pulled the book and the the um, her contract has been an old very very expensive very mistake. expensive yeah. mistake yeah mm. yeah but to to be exposed in such a public way as well you know so she hadn't realised she'd made the mistake until no it's difficult isn't it and, yeah. and Matthew Sweet I actually heard the internet I thought Matthew mm. Sweet was very understanding mm. and said do you realise this doesn't actually mean this mm. um, uh, for her being such an established author. Um, mm. 
unsettling to say the least. I think possibly that part of the problem was that she's American. Possibly, yeah. This was the British judicial system and terminology. Yeah. She's misinterpreted it, yeah. so... Uh, yeah. Unfortunate. Very unfortunate, yes. Another cross-Atlantic case. I've been looking into coverage by the Mail Online of the continuing court battle between the electric car and space travel CEO Elon Musk and the Lancashire-born cave diver Vernon Unsworth, who helped rescue 12 schoolboys and their teacher from a flooded underground tunnel in Thailand last year. Now, it's not—it's a, a defamation case. It's not being heard here. It will be heard in the this, this states. I was alerted to this latest report by a friend of the podcast, the friend of the podcast, Carol Watson from University of Sunderland. Mail Online said last week it had seen scores of text messages from Vernon Unsworth, which Musk claims demonstrate that Unsworth had been trying to make money from film rights and book deals describing his role in the rescue. If you've been following this increasingly complicated case, and it is pretty turgid, it started when Mr Unsworth rubbished Mr Musk's suggestion that the Thai rescue services should use a tiny mini submarine to get access to the flooded cave system. The idea was this thing is about 12 inches across, and the idea he would put tiny children into this and get them out of the uh, cave system. Well, um, so uh, Vernon, uh, he's been he's been doing this stuff for donkey's years, cave diving all over all over the world, actually. So he he didn't think he didn't take it terribly seriously. But uh, Elon Musk took grave grave offence to to what he'd said, and he described Mr. Vernon as that, that pedo guy and then hired a private investigator to try to dig the dirt on him. Musk has since said that he was conned by the investigator, and Vernon says the claims got about his private life in Thailand were simply false. So I suppose nobody comes out of this labyrinth really smelling of roses, but the case is due to come to trial in the US courts in early December, so we'll keep an eye on that. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm closer to home. Uh, i give it to you once again. Brexit. Brexit! The impact that no deal might have on the arts and culture sector here in Manchester and more widely in the northwest of England. Our reporters, Ellie Richard and Prutvi Kalosia, have been researching this as part of one of their third-year investigations. Ellie 
Ellie Richards there, Ellie Richards Caldicott there, and, and Prutvi Kilosa. Thanks to them both. But also, Natalie Carricker, you were working on the, on the story with them. And um, tell us a little bit about the, there's a number of issues that they raised there, including this idea that people who are promised money in the event of a no deal Brexit, the government will continue to fund that, the government will underwrite that. But there's still, you've found an awful lot of concerns amongst various local arts organisations here in the city centre, haven't you? Um, yeah, that's right. So um, we're talking about um, funding from Creative Europe, which is regulated by the EU um, and provides arts funding for um, a lot of UK-based um, arts culture um, and educational organisations. Um, they've stated that if the United kind Kingdom withdraws from the EU during the grant period without concluding an agreement with the EU, um, then funding may cease um, and and different organisations would be required to leave the project. So it's still unclear how um, how funding will be affected. Um, one of the case studies that we talked about um, was Salford-based um, Walk the Plank, who are um, outdoor arts experts um, who create powerful events with mass city appeal. So they work on Manchester Day, which is commissioned um, by Manchester City Council. Um, it's a huge event for the city and it's a great example um, of how art brings the city together. So it's events like this where we're not really sure um, how they'll be affected, um, how whether the funding will be um, underwritten in terms of agreements. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the main concerns. Yeah, and it would have huge impact, wouldn't it, if Manchester Day were have to, would, had folded? Because it's been running for several years now, isn't it? It's a big public big public event, loads and loads of people take part in it. Yeah, that's right. It is commissioned by Manchester City Council, um, but Walk the Plank also have loads of other projects, international projects. So it's it's still a scary time for, for all sorts of people involved in the arts sector, and and I guess the, the, what that leads us on to, so thanks very much indeed, Natalie, for, for all of that, for that update. Um, it leads us on to this other issue that I wanted to discuss today. Um, because the influential political commentator Peter Oborn has said that political journalists have become part of what he called Boris Johnson's fake news machine. He names names in an, in an article on the Open Democracy website um, the last couple of days. He takes no prisoners. The Mail on Sunday, the Today programme, the Sunday Times, and even his former newsroom at the Daily Telegraph. Now, he squarely lays the blame for what he calls a series of smears and fabrications at the door of number 10, but he says Downing Street only gets away with it because political journalists and editors allow it to happen. Jez, you've just been looking at this piece now. What's, mm. What do you make of what he says? Well, he, he sort of, um, I mean, obviously Westminster and, um, you know, the, the, the lobbying scene um, is, is a unique bubble, really, for, for journalists. And it kind of does operate on, you know, off-the-record uh, comments and sources. Uh, but he, he's saying that... Um, a lot of uh, what's been put, put out by Number Ten is going unchallenged by uh, by political journalists, and you know we're not. He says that we're not asking the obvious questions. I think he cites one example from Nick Robinson, doesn't he, at the BBC? Yeah. Um, so he's sort of challenging that culture and saying that we're not probing deeply enough, and that we're sort of um, you know complicit in in promoting. Um, Boris Johnson's and the number 10's yeah, uh, and so, agenda. So, yeah, really. so the Mail on Sunday story that he cites has to do with Oliver Letwin and the accusation yeah. from a Downing Street source that, that, mm. that Oliver Letwin was getting foreign funding when he put in his, his amendment. Yes. Um, and the, the story's a complete fabrication. There's mm. nothing to it at mm. all. But Downing Street's in this position of not having to deny it because it's an anon anonymous source. Mm. Yeah, 
Um, and I, and I, well, I guess you, he's also critical of, of uh, the rolling news channels, BBC, and I suppose the, the need to fill that, those slots. Yeah. A lot of a lot of credence is given to uh, sources and unnamed sources, I guess. Um, but he's very critical of that. Yeah, I think actually, to be fair, I did notice um, yesterday. So we're recording on on Wednesday afternoon. So this was Tuesday evening. Immediately after the the timetable vote, immediately after the mm. government lost the timetable vote. Now, anonymous Downing Street sources were saying earlier in the day, around nine o'clock, ten o'clock, before um, the House of Commons met that if Boris Johnson lost that vote, the timetable vote, then mm. he would ditch the bill altogether and call an election. And then, of course, 8 o'clock, he'd change his mind. Yes. Now, to be fair to the BBC, as a, as a, a, a lower third in the, the scrolling um, mm. text underneath the picture, they did say Boris Johnson had said he was going to call an election. And Christian Fraser, who was the presenter of that segment on the news channel, interestingly, he's a former foreign correspondent, yes. not a lobby correspondent. Yes. And he pointed out the discrepancy between the two positions. Yes. So yes. I think that Peter Oborn, I think, to be fair, is very pointedly aiming this at lobby correspondents who yes. rely on these anonymous briefings. Yes, yeah. It reminds me of that uh, phrase, the American phrase about, uh, you know, it's reporting the White House is like trying to report a, a horse race from inside the horse. You know, um, <laughs> the impossibility. I mean, you know, briefings that are can work both ways. And, uh, and in fact, Gabriel Hinsworth wrote a really good piece actually about, you know, how briefings work and, you know, the, the Sunday newspapers and how, mm. you know, number sources here and sources there. And of course, um, it's part of the game, isn't it? Part of the culture of the, of the Westminster village. And, but I think when it becomes so febrile in this particular, yeah. uh, you know, maybe Brexit, you take Brexit out of the picture, that fairly palatable stuff. Now, you know, it's less palatable. And you wonder what the public thinks. If, if, you know, if we're not doing our job mm. of reporting and inter interrogating, then are we still inside the horse? Yes, yeah. And I suppose, as your point, uh, Pete, you know, uh, reporting hearsay and gossip and, and unattributed sources is one thing. But if, if, <coughs> if context is given down the line, when it's, then it's clear that those uh, comments were untrue or unfounded. And that's that's the role of the journalists, isn't it? Really, is to is to unpick all of that yeah. stuff. I mean, I guess the problem is that it's not attributable. You know, none of this yeah. material is yeah. really attributable. Yeah. And Peter Oborn's point, I guess, is that 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 Downing Street is exploiting that to yeah. the hilt and using it in yeah. every yeah. possible way yes. to get yeah. their story across. And yeah. I mean, I was alerted to this by by Carol Cadwell from the Observer from her mm. her Twitter feed this morning. Uh, this is Wednesday morning, and she said that Peter O'Bone had well and truly broken, mm. um, what was it, broken ranks yes. to tell all of this. And do you think would it would it make a difference if more people kind of showed their working really ab about this and, and about were more transparent about their sources? Yeah, I'm sure it would, and I think I think Brexit has heightened mm. uh, the public's interest in politics. It, it's you know as you say. It's become so divisive, people are very angry about it. So there's so much more attention on political reporting and Number 10 and, and, and everything surrounding and about Brexit. And the role of, you know, Spads and people like Dominic Cummings. Yeah, exactly, what, yeah. What, what, what influence they have and what, what do briefings really mean. Yeah. And I think it's time for us to be a bit more transparent yeah. in, in terms of if you're a political journalist, maybe, you know, that murky world of Westminster Village well, I that think should be lifted a bit. is it is it a landmark 
is it a line in the sand where putting cameras into Westminster was, mm. you know, a move towards so, transparency? So you think putting cameras into the, the Downing Street briefing room might make a difference? It would be interesting to watch, wouldn't it? But, yeah, uh, it would be very interesting. It yeah. does make me yeah. think back, actually. People, if people have seen a very British coup, the mm. Channel 4 film, yeah. this goes back to whatever it was, the early 90s or something like yeah. that. But the, so this, this was a new... Labour, left-wing Labour Prime Minister who came in, mm. and um, Lucy Allen's dad is the senior press officer, Keith Allen is the senior oh, right. press officer in the new Downing Street regime, yeah. and he brings cameras in, he brings TV cameras in, and they identify all but the... But actually, you know, just a few months ago was a Brexit documentary uh, with Gareth Huston, and following him round, and, and you know, yes. you'd think it'd be quite yeah. boring actually, looking a camera looking at, you know, five middle-aged men in Belgium, um, but it was hilarious. It was, and, yeah, and it was gripping it, stuff. It was gripping stuff. It? Yeah. And actually, you know, you, you really saw, you know, what they think of us, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, how these briefings work, so cost, like, you know, come and go on the, on the ferry. Um, I, I thought it gave you a really interesting insight, yes. maybe not into what the press works, but certainly into the way that the, the negotiations were working. Yeah. So hmm. um, maybe it's a way forward. Yeah. 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 And I think sort of... Uh, putting the spotlight on the relationship between yeah. political journalists and their sources, you know, um, to see how close they are and how accurate those kind of, uh, you know, predictions are. Yeah. I mean, I think that there probably is a bit of a clamour for this now because journalists are having to be, because of social media, journalists are having to be much, much more transparent about the way that they put mm. the stories together because people question them and people comment on them. Yeah. Um, and so this is one area where I think the, it's one of those areas where the, the trust in journalism as a trade has been undermined mm. by a whole lot of things over mm. the last 10 or 15 years. Um, but certainly political journalism, I think, has been very badly undermined mm. over the Brexit yes. period. And so yeah. maybe, 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 it's something around. positive. Yeah, maybe it will raise the bar there. again, the standard of uh, against which we'll be measured as journalists. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very much yeah. so. So thanks, thanks for all of that. Finally this week, listeners will have seen lots of coverage of the weeks and months of unrest in Hong Kong. And most recently, some of the quite deliberate and flagrant attacks by the Territory's police force on journalists. Our colleague Elna Schember-Critchley has just returned from a working trip to Hong Kong where she spoke to both journalists covering the anti-government protests and to journalism teachers who are preparing a new generation of reporters for what might be a very different news environment in South Asia in the years to come. I began by asking Ellie what she was able to see of the protests for herself. There was certainly a, a very edgy air around the city with... Um, it was the day that Carrie Lam failed to make her speech within the legislature. For tomorrow's policy address speech that I will make in legislative council chamber, uh, I will be more focused. And um, I'm sure you would agree that the, um, the most important uh, livelihood issue that a chief executive should address would be housing and land supply. <laughs> I had gone just to explore around the building to see what was going on. Bloomberg were actually looking very bored, sitting on a, a bridge because there wasn't much much happening, which surprised a lot of people, but I think people were galvanising themselves for this weekend's um, quite extensive um, illegal protest that happened on Kowloon. 
Um, but what I did see was lots of evidence of linen walls, of which there are hundreds now around the city. And these are walls where people are posting up protest art um, messages, um, solidarity messages on post-it notes. Um, and they tend to be places where a lot of leafleting and information around the movement happens. They'd torn down the one underneath the legislature building, which was quite sad. Um, um, and I did pick up one of the flyers that was sitting there with the five demands on. Which and the five demands on one side and, and a student's homework on the other. Yeah, I mean, that that's the bit that struck me most. You know, you see the five demands, you're thinking, oh, yeah, that's really useful to use within our lessons. And then I turn the piece over and there's what looks like somebody's algebra working out. And... You know, whether it's a, a teacher or a student, either way, it's a pretty poignant piece of, of um, protest literature, I think. Now, we do hear about um, things kind of scaling down a little bit and maybe the weekends being the bigger flashpoint. So we'll come to where you think the story is going later on. But you, you have been speaking to various journalists. So you spoke to a number of journalism teachers because you were at the university there. Tell us about what, what their, what's their perspective on it. Well, on the basis that it is a rolling story. And so I spoke with um, Wesley Tang, who is um, one of our partners over there and, a, and a, also a freelance journalist. And he talked about there being um, no shortage of new angles when covering this story. Well, here in Hong Kong, I think um, there are multiple factors that are driving you know, um, the new the news reporting styles or approaches. I think one of them would be the actually the timeline of the grand scheme of things. You know, today it will be about the policy address, um, and last night it was about you know the U.S. passing the Democracy Act, Democracy and, and, and Human Rights. Um, so I think on the surface it looks like it will follow you know the the timeline of the major events that are supposed to be taking place. But uh, at the same time, I can also sense at least that you know the protesters they are running their own campaigns. So I think starting from today, we are seeing more about the so-called promotions for uh, another demonstration on Sunday. So it will be taking place in Kowloon, right? and some people said that they are expecting at least immediate of you know, protesters. Uh, joining the demonstration, uh, so these will be the you know there are multiple factors that are really driving the the, the development of the news story about uh, news reporting approaches. Um, and how do you what do you think of the foreign reporting of of this story? Well, I find it very amazing actually <laughs> to see so many foreign you know um, news workers here in Hong Kong, and they were. Um, doing live reports, um, but one thing that I, I did notice is that you know um, many of the foreign news teams they would be following the schedules of their home countries, <laughs> so that uh, when, for example, when local news news teams are uh, are coming to an end of their assignment, right, maybe the foreign teams are still working at, let's say, 3 a.m. in the morning, right, because maybe that team comes from the United States or from the UK. 
So that is a very interesting observation. Back with Ellie again. So you've not just been talking to teachers, journalism teachers, you've also been talking to a number of people kind of, you know, right on the front line who are reporting all of this. So tell us about what, what you heard from some of them. It was really interesting. I spoke to a videographer who works for the um, one of the large um, media organisations in Hong Kong and um he felt it very difficult to talk freely about this subject and and that was i guess determined because he isn't a frontline reporter and he's doesn't have that social media presence and a brand and so he was very hesitant to give his own opinion on about how how the story is being covered um, I talked to Alvin Lum, who's the um, political correspondent for the South China Morning Post. Uh, he has a great media presence, social media presence, and um, was able to speak very um, insightfully about how to keep the story going, um, the particular issues for the press on reporting this. Um, and the, he was able to speak very positively about um, the how to work with the protesters and the willingness of protesters to be to be getting their stories out there. I guess when it first started in June, when the entire movement started, um, they were quite re- relatively friendly because they know they have to appeal to the public. So that's why they they was too friendly to the. Um, uh, media, so that puts us a challenge that we need. We still have to ask them the, what questions are needed to be asked, and um, why are they using some of the tactics. Um, but when the when the protests turned more violent, um, I think there were a sense of they uh, they would put up, for instance, some umbrellas, uh, try to prevent the cameras from um, being photographing their. Um, their faces or their what they've been doing mm. uh, to avoid future um, prosecutions. So uh, it, it might not be entirely um, the same degree of friendliness mm. back in June, um, but it was still more still relatively easygoing in terms of um, on the ground experience. Yeah. Just as a follow on to that, has the anti-mask law made? Um, protesters less um, willing to appear on camera or be interviewed. Um, I think it was it was a um, it was more and more used to people who were not revealing their faces in public, especially when uh, rallies itself were increasingly being banned even before the masks come into effect um so yeah there, there was a very strong sense of fear and worry from being retribution from appearing on the camera so so that's a little bit of concern for the tv uh, for our colleagues working in tv not so much for myself but we, we do have to cast for their names or occupations from time to time uh, as, a, as a general Fox Fox. So um, um, we might have to ask one or two more people to I mean, get get our job done. But uh, so far, it's it's okay for us. But um, I would reckon the um, uh, colleagues in TV stations would be more tough on their end. So that's the voice there of, of Alvin, Alvin Lum. Um, back with Ellie again. Um, you're back now in the UK, and there is 
overnight, we're recording this um, Wednesday afternoon, overnight there, was, there were these reports from Be that, that the authorities in Beijing are looking to get rid of Carrie Lam and replace them with a new figure. Um, I guess that's one of the, the things that a lot of people here have been thinking, well, that'll be it. If they just, that, that'll be the big flashpoint in the story. But then after that, Beijing will kind of sweep in and that'll be it. They'll, they'll wipe up the mess and it'll all be over. Is that how people see it in the territory itself? Um, no, no. I think in a way, uh, for a story, people want to see a conclusion, you know, a mm. climax to the story. And actually when it's played out that that's not the case and certainly when I spoke to Alvin we we talked about um Carrie Lum uh, Carrie Lum's very precarious position and I said to him you know do you want a future gaze how do you see this playing out in the territory and he talked about years rather than you know months or, yes and and certainly with the um breaking of the joint declaration um but all eyes being on Hong Kong and it being such a significant place. It, this is a story that will just keep rolling. Okay, well, we will keep an eye on that. Um, for the moment, Ellie Shemba Critchley, thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Rights. Thank you very much. Ellie Shemba Critchley, and a big thanks to her for gathering all that material in Hong Kong. We'll stay across the story in the coming months and especially we'll keep a watch on any further attacks on journalists as things develop. Before we go, Dave, Jess, what's coming up for the students this week? Dave? Um, tomorrow, second year, we start Defamation, and then on Tuesday next week, which is uh, what we call Reading Week, uh, take them to Magistrates Court, so quite busy. Yep, and, uh, and we'll be in Crown Court, actually, so you'll be there, you'll be in Magistrates Court we'll wave Tuesday, at you. we'll wave from across, <laughs> we'll wave across Crown Square. I'm taking the, the MAs into Crown Court on, on Wednesday and Thursday, hopefully get one single trial, and they can watch one trial across Fantastic. the two days. Uh, in the week after reading week, we in law and ethics we've got uh, David Collins from the Sunday Times coming in. He's going to talk. We've been former guest on the podcast. Exactly. Well. Yes. He's, we may get him as a repeat uh, yeah. guest. Yeah. He's coming to talk about journalist sources, and he'll be talking specifically about the uh, the pieces he wrote about uh, Levi Belfield, the murderer of yeah. Millie Dowler, Great and story. how he sort of uh, cultivated that uh, relationship to do some great journalism. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So with a bit of luck, actually, maybe if David's got time, we could get him to talk about anonymous sources as well. Absolutely, I mean, we could get him. That'd be quite interesting, somebody from outside the political lobby and yes. what their view is. Yeah, it, it would be interesting, mm. yes. Just yeah. toxic or whether that environment's become too toxic to, too toxic to tolerate. Yes. Um, but do listen in next week. Uh, we'll also be speaking to the editor of a new quarterly business magazine produced in Liverpool with a global outlook and a global audience. And of course, we'll be covering any other issues that you'd like us to cover from your lectures or from your reading. Remember, you can tweet at us at, at RightsBang if there are issues you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Remember also to subscribe to Bang to Rights. Search for us on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher and we'll drop right onto your podcast feed. You can also find us on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. For now, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jez. Thanks, Pete. And thanks, Natalie. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> we have been Bang to Rights. Thanks all for listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>